This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. British troops are about to embark on the final phase of transition in Afghanistan. The Syrian president's al-Qaeda warning to the West. Now they back it in Syria, in Libya and in other places and they will pay the price later in the heart of Europe and the US. And remembering the Iron Lady. She had something about her, I think it's called it or whatever it is. The Afghan insurgency has not been defeated and remains ruthless and effective, according to the former head of British troops in Helmand. Brigadier Bob Bruce, commanding officer of four mechanised brigades, says while Afghan security forces have made significant progress, they still need help. Next month, we'll see the final phase of transition in Afghanistan, which will continue until the end of 2014. BFBS reporter Charlotte Cross spoke to Brigadier Bruce and asked him what changes we'll see during this final phase. Well, in central Helmand, the area where I've just finished working, there won't be a massive change because we sensed the opportunity to move forward uh, boldly on the back of all the great work that had gone on by task forces before us to move forward boldly and effectively to reach that situation uh, over this winter. So as I left, I handed over a situation where the Afghan security forces were leading on the delivery of security in central Helmand, all over central Helmand. However, I should make it really clear that we are supporting them. So there's still plenty of work to do, a lot of uh, nuanced and uh, demanding work to do, but the point is it's us in support of them, so us working to their plans rather than the other way around. And in the briefing, it was mentioned the, um, the reliance that the Afghan security forces still have on ISAF for things like Kazivak, ISTAR, um, logistics, things like that. How do you see their capabilities progressing over the next year or so? Is it already happening, do you think? It, well, it is already happening. And, and the uh, capabilities uh, that they request from us routinely are capabilities such as uh, surveillance and target acquisition, some reconnaissance the ability to uh, strike a target once it's been uh, acquired, fires, to use the jargon, uh, casualty evacuation, yes, that is important for them. They're actually doing 70%, as I left, the Afghan Army Brigade was doing 70% of its own casualty evacuation, but for the most seriously wounded, they still rely on us to get them to our Roll 3 hospital. Uh, and logistics, we're, we're also helping routinely with logistics. Now, in time, they will develop their own capabilities in these areas so that they are strong enough to work independently, but we're not there yet. The other thing they really want is the reassurance of knowing that we will deploy to support them if they're under real pressure. And that's why we will retain combat capability right to the end of the campaign, and we will deploy it to ensure the Afghan security forces don't fail. And what about the risk of insider attacks? Is enough being done to counter those, or are we likely to see more of those again in the summer? Insider threat attacks uh, are, I suspect, going to remain a risk out towards the end of the campaign. We can reduce that risk, reduce the risk of such attacks happening, reduce the impact after such an attack has happened, but I don't think we're ever going to completely eliminate it. Now, 
The reason I can say is that the, the risk is lower now than it was when I first deployed is because of the solid steps, the tangible steps that Afghan security force leaders have made themselves in order to reduce the risk of it happening. And they, they have been significant. We've made some uh, steps and they've made some, some steps and the accumulated impact of all of that work has been to reduce the risk, but we'll never get rid of it completely. Brigadier Bob Bruce, who's just returned from Afghanistan after six months of commanding Task Force Helmand. Well, I'm joined by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. And also our reporter out in Camp Bastion, James Hurst. Hi, James. Um, Brigadier Bruce mentions there about Afghan forces becoming less reliant on British troops for things like getting casualties out. Have you seen any evidence of this? Well, on Sunday morning, I was out at one of the more patrol, more remote patrol bases here in Helmand, Patrol Base Sparta, and uh, the Brigade Advisory Group are, have a team working out of there, training some of the Afghan soldiers who are at a base just over the road. And what I watched on Sunday morning was um, a, a, a battlefield first aid refresher session, I guess, both for the Afghans and for some of the British soldiers, stabilising a casualty and, and pick, literally physically picking them and up and getting them out of the area. The kind of thing that, that you're going to need to do just before a casualty evacuation. And from what I saw and from what the uh, the Brits I was talking to there said that you know, they seem pretty competent, they are ready for it, they're not having to rely on the British the way they were because they are now more than they were going out and patrolling on their own, not in partnered patrols, not in mentor patrols, but actually going out and doing it. And is there anything that the Afghans have not been trained to do yet? Uh, broadly, the message you, you get from uh, the people doing the mentoring and training is they've been trained on everything. The focus, though, is shifting. I mean, a couple of years ago, it was about building up the forces and building up many people who are new recruits from scratch. Last year, the message I was hearing is it was about getting those forces to actually put their training into practice, to try it out, to go there and do it. Now it's refining and honing that training. Uh, not just the basic soldiering, going out and fighting, but um, the sustaining things casualty evacuation one of the things you mentioned there but also things like engineering building your own checkpoints and roads because it's not going to be isaf forces here to do that and also some of the bomb disposal the uh, afghans have been seen as being very good at spotting uh, the, uh, the potential of ieds but actually the, the kind of some of the technicalities and the fine points of that it's building that kind of thing one thing it's worth stressing though what british troops are not trying to do is replicate the Brit british army in way it is to give the afghans the skill they need to do it their way. Uh, James, you've reported from Afghanistan for many years now. What changes have you noticed since your last day? Oh, certainly the, the tempo of British operations has changed. Last time I was here, the word always was partnering. It was about working alongside the Afghans. Now people will tell you we are standing shoulder to shoulder with the Afghans, but they are in the lead. And as I say, I think, you know, I was talking to um, the uh, officer commanding uh, 40 Kandak advisory team, 4-0 Kandak advisory team uh, on Sunday. And he was saying, you know, he was out here last summer and he is surprised at how much further ahead the Afghans are, that they are going out and doing it on their own. And they will come to them and say, we've got, a, you know, we've got some time today. Uh, can you give us some help with this? But other days they'll go, sorry, we're a bit busy, we're going out patrolling, and they will leave the, the British, you know, waiting for a moment when they can help and advise them. And there is definitely a feeling that, as I say, while the British still feel they need to be here to support, it's more of a watch and wait rather than go with them side by side.
All right, James Hurst and Cam Bastian, thanks for that. Um, Christopher, that does sound a fairly positive picture. And you've always said, or we've always said on this programme, that the key to the stability, long-term stability of Afghanistan will lie in its neighbours, notably Pakistan. Events this week suggest that uh, Pakistan itself is becoming a little unstable, worryingly so. Yeah, uh, Pakistan is going through this run-up to elections. Uh, It's had a very stable or relatively stable government for the past five years. The first time a Pakistan government has stayed the full run for five years. Uh, One of the candidates is uh, is the General uh, Musharraf, who was president. He turned up a few weeks ago, so I'm going to run for president. Uh, The court said, actually, we, we want to nick you because you, when you were here... Uh, you uh, kicked out uh, some of the uh, some of the legals. You put the, some of the judges in prison for a bit, and therefore you can expect to go on trial. He did a runner from the court yesterday, and at the moment he's holed up in a, his his bungalow in the in in the brush somewhere. If that stability, if he 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 won't get a renewal of his bail, therefore he will be nicked. He'll be arrested. If they arrest him, then there's going to be opposition. If people take to the streets, you'll have the instability which you can't afford. But in the meantime, going back to what James was saying, what the brigadier was saying, there are important things going on here which need Pakistan's re- uh, reporting, for example. Like Kazivaks, you were talking about getting casualties out. That's OK as long as you've got the transport, the helicopters to get them out further. What do you get them out to? What about the police? The police are the weak point. Uh, Pakistan people can actually help here. Uh, the other thing was the position of Taliban and the warlords after January next year when there are elections in, in Afghanistan. These are the unanswered questions. Lots of positives, as the Brigadier and James reports, but the basic weaknesses are the ones that could actually blow the whole thing aside. I'm sure we'll be returning to this subject uh, very soon. Uh, Let's move on. The Syrian President Bashar al-Assad has accused Western countries of backing al-Qaeda in his country's civil war. In a defiant interview with state television, he warned that the West would pay a heavy price when terrorism returns to Europe and the United States. In the final count, Syria will pay the price. It will be an expensive price. We can see now the results of the destruction of the infrastructure and the corruption of thought in Syria. Even if the state wins, it will be a weak state. This is what the West aims for by this support. However, this West does not know, or maybe it knows but is not aware at the moment, that this terrorism will return to Europe. The Western media has begun speaking of these dangers. But it is a fact, as they financed al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and paid the price dearly. Now they back it in Syria, in Libya and in other places, and they will pay the price later in the heart of Europe and the US. Christopher, there are so many different rebel factions in Syria, making it difficult for the West to know which ones to side with. Is there any truth in what Assad has said? There's truth in what he says, in as much that there is a group uh, and, and subgroups that have allied themselves and claim a distinction with with al-Qaeda. What they've done, they've aligned themselves with the leader, the new Osama bin Laden, if you like. Then what's happened is in Iraq, where al-Qaeda is very strong, they have said, ah, we are with our brothers in Syria. Now, that is very scary for a lot of people. In the meantime, the United Kingdom, along with other people, are saying perhaps we ought to arm some of the rebels. 
the Americans are saying, hang on a minute, what happens if the arms you're suggesting get in, in the hands of these al-Qaeda-based uh, rebels and then they get into power because of it? Something else has happened and that is the, the uh, Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, he has said, we are very worried about this and because we have the border with Syria, which is up on the Golan Heights. Also, do you remember, was it January, when the Israelis went into Syria Early and knocked year, out a convoy with weapons that were being sent down to Hezbollah in Lebanon to attack Syria? Therefore, the Israelis are now saying, if you don't get this right, and with these al-Qaeda groups in Syria, the whole thing could turn into a Middle East confl conflagration. Br briefly, Christopher, NATO foreign ministers will meet next week. Will they have any answers? No, they won't have any answers to that. The answers, if there's going to be an answer, will be next month at the EU summit when they'll have to decide whether they're going to lift the embargo on Syrian weapons or weapons going to these Syrian rebels. Uh, and that's been lobbied at the moment. The boss of the rebels is today in London half an hour ago in the Foreign Office, trying to convince them that's what they should do. Christmas, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, what happened when our reporter got an exclusive look at an F-35 Lightning II. Currently at 1.9 miles out, 150 knots of airspeed, drifting slightly. Oh, I'm going to turn it. There we go. Don't worry, it wasn't the real thing, but a unique engineering simulator. GFBS Sit rep. Around 850 servicemen and women took part in yesterday's funeral of Baroness Thatcher, Britain's longest-serving Prime Minister of modern times. Former First Sea Lord Admiral Jonathan Band was the personal staff officer to the British Task Force commander during the Falklands conflict, a role which brought him into direct contact with the Iron Lady. Our reporter, Rosie Layden, spoke to him after the funeral. She had something about her, I think it's called it, or whatever it is. Um... She had a real clarity of whenever you're speaking to her. She's one of the people who really sort of bores into you. You're really talking to her, if you know what I mean. Um, very clear, very analytical, very sort of, tell me the facts. Uh, you know, no bullshit. Yeah, I, I want to know. I want to know the risks. I want to know the pros and the cons. When she was told and would talk to the commander-in-chief about the consequence of the loss of the Sheffield, you know, which was, you know, that awful moment, the first destroyer hit, first naval ship to be sunk since 1945, you know. Uh, so then you saw the more emotional side of her, and you certainly saw the elation when we had achieved the first part of the recapture when, we, when uh, the force went into South Georgia and retook that. So many veterans and those who served in the forces during her time as Premier describe her as a great war leader. Would you agree with that? In the very same breath as Winston Churchill, no. Disrespectful to Winston Churchill. But, I mean, life moves on. I mean, there's not many people who have the opportunity or the shock of having part of your country invaded. And the interesting thing about the Falklands is you could say, and some have said, that, of course, it was the behaviour of her foreign office and her decisions of the 1981 defence review that actually gave all the signals to Argentina that they needed. Uh, because, of course, the 81 Defence Review was one that, you know, would have massacred the Royal Navy, would have taken away the aircraft carriers and the amphibious ships, without which you couldn't do the Falklands. That was Admiral Jonathan Band speaking to Rosie Layden. Well, Major General Julian Thompson led three commando brigade during the Falklands campaign and was also a guest at the funeral. He joins us now. Hello, General. And we spoke to you last week before the funeral. What did you make of it? 
Well, it was a privilege to be there. And, and what was remarkable about it, I think, was in the audience, as well as on the streets, there were loads and loads and loads of ex-Marine soldiers and sailors and airmen. And one would not normally expect to have as many as that in the congregation of any uh, uh, politician, even a prime minister. And, of course, one of the reasons why we were so glad to be there was because we admired her and recognised in her the great leader and person that she was. And I suppose, Julian Thompson, uh, given that it was also a sad occasion, this must also be mixed with a bit of happiness, a reunion with people that you've worked with many years ago. Well, it was, in a sense, a reunion. Obviously, it was a very solemn occasion. Uh, but afterwards we went to the reception and we met old friends we hadn't seen for years and we all felt that this was a passing of a great person a, a, a wonderful leader was it what you expected was the service what i expected yes it was it was it was it was a very um, straight up and down service there was no frills to it great music great hymns and a marvellous address by the Bishop of London who hit the spot absolutely on the button. Christopher, are we ever going to see the likes of this kind of occasion again? Can I put this in some sort of context? Margaret Thatcher, we always, you know, we hear about the political divisiveness of when she was in government, etc. Margaret Thatcher's formative years were actually just after the Second World War when she was a young lady. Uh, Stalin, the beginning of the Cold War, and then the Korean War, and then uh, eventually, I suppose, the growth of the nuclear confrontations that might have been. When she went into Cabinet in 1979, her first Cabinet, there were five military crosses in her Cabinet, including people like Lord Carrington and, um, and Willie Whitelaw. She was, had this in her head about this military concept, a couple of weeks, a few weeks before she became Prime Minister, the man, one of her closest friends ever, who was about to become Northern Ireland Secretary, was assassinated in the Palace of Westminster in Parliament itself. A few months after that, in August, August 27th, was Warren Point, when I think it was 13 Paris were uh, bombed. It was the same day that Lord Mountbatten, Earl Mountbatten, was assassinated. And so... I'm beginning to think that what we saw yesterday was a military funeral. And when the gun carriage went back to Napier Lines at the garrison in, in Woolwich, the gunner's garrison, it then becomes named the Baroness Thatcher, Thatcher Carriage. I don't think we'll see another Prime Minister carried on a carriage like that. In fact, I think Baroness Thatcher gun carriage will be wheeled out later this month to fire a royal salute in celebration of the Queen's birthday. Back to normal, but we won't see its like again. Christopher, stay with us, and thank you, Major General Julian Thompson, for sharing your thoughts of yesterday with us today. North Korea has said it's open to talks to defuse the tension on the Korean peninsula, but not without making a whole list of demands. They include the end of UN sanctions and US military drills, plus the withdrawal of all America's nuclear weapon assets from the region. Meanwhile, China has criticised the US military presence in the region and accused Japan of raise, raising regional tensions. On top of this, Taiwan has held its first live-fire military drill for some time. Let's try and make some sense 
of all of this. Andrea Berger is an expert on nuclear issues at the Royal United Services Institute and joins us now. Hello, Andrea. Uh, let's start with North Korea. It looks like Kim Jong-un is following the well-trodden route of his forefathers, increased the tensions to boiling point, then tried to gain some kind of concessions. That's right. Well, it certainly doesn't look like he's the kind of person he, who's going to want to revisit the country's military first policy. Quite the contrary. Uh, he seems very much, like you said, to be sticking to the approaches of his father and grandfather and, as a matter of fact, making the tone much louder. It's not immediately clear what type of concessions, if any, North Korea is after with its later, latest rhetoric. It seems most likely that what they're trying to do is deter the type of behavior that they really dislike coming from the United States, namely the movement of military assets into the region and uh, perhaps some of the stiffer talk and demonstrations of alliance commitment that North Korea feels is really threatening. But nevertheless, we, we have seen quite a consistently belligerent approach from North Korea in the past few weeks. You've recently been in China. It's publicly held back regarding North Korea. How likely is it that it will lose patience with the new leader and take matters into its own hands? Well, not very likely anytime soon. Chinese patience is remarkably uh, high. And in this particular situation, they certainly are losing patience um, slowly and becoming aggravated with the direction of the current situation um, and the decisions by the North Korean regime. But they're not um, willing to take very significant steps yet. They have done some small scale things. They've shown, for instance, that they're willing to start stopping ships and perhaps more actively implementing existing UN sanctions and, and done things like or there have been rumors really that they have demanded increased payment from the North Koreans for Chinese oil. Those are some sorts of small steps, but we're not likely to see any major rethink on the part of Beijing. Christopher, China has for the first time issued a white paper detailing its military strength. Why has it done that? Well, we thought it was going to happen. I mean, there was something very, very similar about sort of, uh, I think it's five years ago. Uh, new regime, new types of uh, 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 progresses, as they would see, and also a justification of enormous spending. Now, China's uh, uh, economic growth at the moment is about 7%, which we would think was marvellous, but they think that actually that's rather down on what it was. You know, it's, it's that booming. But the defence uh, increases are going to be about 10%. And so there is not just a question of justification, but it also reflects on what China is thinking in a wider context. You know, we sometimes we say, what's well, Japan's position in this? And the Chinese have a the Chinese army talk about the Japan situation or the Japan problem. And the reason for this, and it's, it ties in with the modern leadership, um, and I think Andrew might agree with this, that they're not quite sure what to make of the Japanese Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe at the moment. He is trying to push through changes in the Constitution, including the most important Article 96. And that basically says, if we want to change things, all we need is a two-thirds majority to do it. They can do some arm-twisting and get that two-thirds. And if that happens, then they can change Article 9, say the Chinese, which says we'll never go to war again. And that's what the Chinese, I think, are most concerned about Japan about. Andrea, it does sound like there are a lot of game-changers in the background here. How unstable is the region becoming? 
Well, not immediately unstable. What's happened is in the last two months, you've had some developments both in the Korean situation, but more broadly in East Asia, that will really stick into the long term. So you've had some decisions by North Korea, for instance, to restart its plutonium production route to a bomb. Um, You've had a real first test for the United States of its pivot to Asia strategy. You've had some decisions, uh, like was just mentioned, from Japan on rethinking portions of its current approach to defense. And those types of decisions are ones which will last into the future, could collide and could become quite aggravated. Christopher. Slight change has happened. In the past few weeks, we've heard all these statements from uh, Kim Jong-un, right? This came from the Defence Commission, not from the President, not from the Glorious Leader. That's going back to where we used to be. All the responses and the shouting used to come from the Defence people, the the Army, and that may step change somewhere. Christopher, stay with us. And thank you, Andrea Berger, from the Royal United Services Institute for your time today. This is BFBS. Sit rep. A unique engineering simulator is helping to integrate the latest generation of aircraft carrier with its aircraft, the F-35 Lightning II. By using advanced computer simulations of what it will be like to land the jet on the carrier, it's helping iron out problems before they arise and save millions of pounds. Our reporter Tim Cooper has been given exclusive access to the simulator at BAA Systems at Wharton in Lancashire. Currently at 1.9 miles out, 150 knots of airspeed. Drifting slightly. Oh, I'm going to turn it. There we go. You can f- I'm sitting in a multi-million pound simulator of the F-35. Hydraulics below me move the cockpit around. Ahead of me, the new Queen Elizabeth class carrier is looming into view. And BAE Systems test pilot Peter Wilson is talking me through how to land okay. it. Yeah, we're yeah, slowing down. Push that down. This isn't a traditional jump jet vertical landing. It's called a rolling stovall landing. My airspeed is trimmed down to just 64 knots, allowing me to perform a short landing using only about 200 feet of the 900 plus foot deck. That's because a vertical lander becomes impractical when the F-35 is fully loaded. Oh, without brake on. That was awesome. <laughs> it all seems relatively easy, and as Peter Wilson explains, it's meant to. What we're trying to do with F-35 all over the place is make the airplane super easy to fly so that the guys in the cockpit can focus on what they really need to be worrying about, which is the, the war. The simulator isn't for training future F-35 pilots. It's designed to get the engineering of both the jet and the carrier bang on. Dr Steve Hodge controls and programmes the simulation. We can look at all the pros and cons, issues, and work our way around those so that we're not got any nasty surprises when we actually go out and do this for real. Past procurement processes have been dogged by teething troubles. F-35 Sustainment Programme Manager Craig Smith believes simulation will really help. Procurement is all about getting it right at the right time and de-risking the programme through this type of simulation and emulation is crucial to that. On the day of my visit, military personnel were spending time in the simulator. They represent the customer in this whole process. Lieutenant Commander Chris Goker has been involved in ship air integration from an end-user perspective. You normally get the plane developing and then the ship would be developing in isolation and then finally when we get the two platforms together we then find out where all the problems are. The advantage of this is very much the case that we can look at both the ship and the plane together and start understanding how we want to integrate them together. By the running of numerous simulated landings, changes have already been identified. For example, the planes stored on the edge of the deck of the carrier will now be stored at an angle rather than straight on. The carrier is going to be built this way, saving millions of pounds. Because without the simulation, costly changes would have to have been made post-build. 
We're still years away from seeing a QE2-class carrier with its complement of F-35s in an operational stance. But with this continual high level of simulation, hopes are high that it'll be a relatively smooth process getting to that stage. Tim Cooper for SIPREP at Wharton in Lancashire. So, Christopher, a relatively smooth process getting to that stage. How many F-35s we going to see? Well, you see, the next smooth process we want to actually see is, is numbers and how much. The Americans having problems with the F-35, not with the aircraft, which is great, but with their budget. So they may be withdrew. In fact, they're going to reduce the number they're ordering. And if we're they dependent do, on their order. Yeah, well, if they, if they reduce their order, unit price goes up, unit cost for, per aircraft goes up, we have to turn around and say, well, you know, are we going to have as many as we thought we have when we thought we would have? So that's something... I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a terrible thing, but when we start coming to function about the next defence budget... That's what we've got to put in. Uh, speaking of America, we can't uh, end today without mentioning the, the bombing uh, in Boston during that marathon. And at the time of us speaking now, Christopher, no one's claimed responsibility for that atrocity. Why is that, do you curious, think? It's a curious silence, isn't it? Um, now, I tell you, let me put it in context of uh, President Obama. President Obama, uh, I would guess politically, would hope that someone like an al-Qaeda type organization would claim responsibility but nobody has why would he hope that uh because he doesn't want it to be homegrown he has you know when this happened the explosion happened the vice president joe biden was on the telephone trying to get rid or trying to get rid of uh, or trying to force through gun law it didn't happen that's how worried america is they don't want this to be a homegrown uh, 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 uh catastrophe and that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter and you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We'll be back at the same time next week, but for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening and bye-bye. With Eddie Mann.